Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. This past week was a gloomy one where we're stationed in Iowa. It was rainy every day, and the temperatures just dropped. But it's back to nicer weather today, so we're all feeling happier. But I definitely got a lot more sewing done on those rainy days than I have been getting on the sunny ones, so I guess I don't totally mind. On today's show, we're sharing some quick tips for sewing borders to your quilt. If you've ever had trouble with wavy borders or even altering a pattern to add borders, you'll love the tricks we have for you. We also chat with the amazing Sandra Johnson, whose beautiful and meaningful work we know you'll be inspired by. So let's dive in. Borders are a great way to finish off a quilt and frame the center design, but it's not as easy as cutting fabric and sewing it to your quilt. I'm here with Allison Gam, the designer of Quilts and More magazine, to talk about some important things to consider when adding borders. Allison, what's the first thing you should think about? First, think about the desired finish size of your quilt. Adding borders can be a great way to alter any quilt pattern to be larger without the work of making extra blocks. However, simply adding large borders to get the size you want can end up overwhelming your quilt and looking out of proportion. Instead, consider adding multiple borders so it adds more visual interest to the edges of your quilt. You'll notice in many of our magazines, quilts feature a skinny inner border and a larger outer border. You can even add pieced borders to extend the design of the quilt while adding to the size. Or try appliquing a design on the borders to help offset some of the open space a border brings to the quilt. It's all up to your personal preference. But if you're a numbers person, Lindsay has some more details to share about the width of borders. Absolutely. So let's talk about the proportions of your quilt. You don't want your border to overwhelm the quilt, but you also don't want it to look too small compared to the scale of your blocks. So here are some general guidelines. A small wall hanging should have a border of less than six inches, while a king size quilt can handle a 12 to 14 inch border. An easy way to figure out your border width is to look at the size of the blocks in your quilt. If your blocks finish at six inches, say, try adding a six inch border to your quilt. Those are great tips. And if you're still unsure of what size to cut your borders, try laying out some fabric next to your quilt top and play around with different widths before you cut. When you're getting ready to add borders, there are several things you can do to make sure your quilt ends up nice and square. We always suggest waiting until your quilt top is pieced before cutting your border strips. So any variations in your seam allowance can change the finished size of your top. If you cut your border strips the size the pattern specifies, there is a chance they may be too short or too long when you go to add them. I'm sure some of us have learned that lesson the hard way. I know a few times I've gone to add my borders and they've come out a little short, and then I have to hope I have enough fabric to piece the borders together to make them longer. Allison, another common problem with piecing borders is having them come out wavy, which can cause big problems when you go to quilt the quilt. So what can our listeners do to avoid that? 
To perfectly fit your borders, first measure the length of your quilt in the center, then on both ends. Hopefully those numbers are the same, but if not, take the average and cut your border to that size. Then match up the ends and center point of your border and your top and pin in place. You can do this by folding the border strip in half and finger press to find the center, and then do the same with your quilt top and align these folded marks. If the border is slightly larger or smaller than your top, you can ease a little bit of difference by putting the longer edge facing down toward the machine. The machine's feed dogs will pull the longer section through the machine slightly faster than the top to even out small variations in size. So Allison has an amazing video she did on our website of this technique that she was just talking about so that you can see exactly how to do it. So we will link to that in the show notes. Our next tip is for sewing on the borders. So sew with your quilt top facing up if it's possible. Since you'll see the seams of the quilt top while sewing the border on, you can make sure no seams get twisted as you sew. Twisted seams can cause unnecessary bulk while you're quilting. You also want to make sure to use plenty of pins to avoid stretching your border strips. Absolutely. I have had my fair share of wavy borders because I didn't pin as much as I should have. Quilt tops are heavy and can pull or drag while sewing borders on, which can cause uneven seams. If you're pinning and stopping with your needle down to adjust as needed, you'll keep a consistent quarter inch seam the whole way. Thanks so much for sharing these tips, Allison. We're going to take a quick ad break, but when we get back, we're chatting with Sandra Johnson. And we're back. Last month, our editor, Jody Sanders, had the pleasure of talking to Sandra Johnson. Sandra is an inspirational teacher, a master with sashiko and boro stitching, and creates beautiful and unique quilts and garments. She shares a lot of fun tips and stories with Jody, so please enjoy their chat. This is Jody Sanders, editor of American Patchwork and Quilting. Today I'm joined by Sandra Johnson. And Sandra, why don't you tell us about yourself and maybe how you got started in quilting? Well, I got started in quilting back in um, 1976. So like all people in my age group, we had home economics and my seventh grade home economics teacher uh, saw something in me. I don't know what it was because it was not skill level. I, she taught us how to sew and I actually took a quilting class at the same time through my local quilt shop. Uh, fell in love with fabric um, and also fell in love with the whole, whole idea of making something my own. Um, it was very empowering for me. Um, at the same time, uh, my skill level was extremely low, let's just say. Um, and that's putting it nicely. From there, I continued sewing and just started making things and making things and reading patterns and staying up at night, um, just really jumping into it. Um, the home I grew up in was not a creative home. So uh, me being creative was really like an oddball um, situation. And my mother did, I remember buying me a sewing machine and I actually received my first commission job ever when I was in high school. And from then I knew this is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
but I didn't really understand career-wise. Um, I grew up in the household where, you know, you get a job, you go to college, you get a job, you work a career, you retire at 65, and that's what you do. So I did that. I went on to high school. I ended up getting the Home Economics Award in high school, had no clue that there were even awards for home economics like there are for English and math and all that. I almost didn't even go to the, the, um, the luncheon because I thought, only nerdy people go to those kind of luncheons. Like, who would go to that? Um, but I did because my mom made me. And uh, when they got ready to give out the award, I'm thinking, clearly, that's going to the, you know, there's always that one girl whose mother taught them everything and they know how to do everything and they're the best homemakers. And that wasn't my life. That wasn't my story. And when they fell off my chair, I was like, that's how much I was just in my own world and just creating what I wanted to create not for any outside influences. When on the college, I have uh, received a Bachelor of Science in Liberal Arts out of the Home Economics Department at Arizona State University. Um, the emphasis was marketing and textiles. So I really understand fibers, the growing, man-made versus you know growing them, what fibers look like, why they react, dyeing, all that type process. Got out of college, went into the real world, was a buyer for Bullock's department stores, um, went into retail and then jumped into um, other sectors. But at the same time, right out of college, my home economics teacher jumped back into my life and had me start teaching quilting in 1984. So I've been teaching quilting classes since 1984. I've definitely seen the industry change and I've seen the industry not change in areas that I wish they would change. Um, but again, it's been an industry that has had its ups and downs. We had a heyday back in those days. I mean, quilting was very, very popular amongst um, women, mature women. Um, and since then, has I see a big change where we need to grab those younger women. Um, so all of that time, four kids later, I used to quilt at night. I feel like um, I was put on this earth to produce product with what I had around me. So I'm very much into, because when you're producing at night, you can't run out to the fabric store. At 10 o'clock at night, if you're trying to finish something and you run out of that one color thread, you look around and you say, what other color thread can I use or what other fabric works? And that's what I'm known for. It's like I do and I create with what I have around me. And I want other creators to do that. And I want, I want to empower all creators to use what we have to create based on who you are as a person. One of the techniques that you're known for is Sashiko. And I'm wondering if you can kind of explain to us how you got started. So how I, so Sashiko is Japanese embroidery um, patterns, basically. And how I got started with hand stitching, period, is I was the kid that my grandmother, on my mother's side, she did so. And she was very good with um, creating things. Well, as a child, she would give me a piece of fabric and a needle to, to keep me quiet. And that's what I, I would sit in the corner with her pinking shears and I would pink and shear and stitch, just period. No pattern, no nothing. Um, because she really didn't use patterns either. She designed her own patterns. So as I got older, that um, the hand stitching process for me as a, a creator is very um, soothing. When my world around me, because remember I had four kids. So when my world around me was going haywire, I knew I could take a piece of fabric, a thread, and, and, and a needle and do some stitching, which actually is very therapeutic to me. So henceforth moved 
30 years, 40 years forward. And now they're talking about this sash ago. And I'm like, whoa, I've never seen this type of embroidery. It's a different, and it has a meaning behind it and a story behind it. And that's what really draws me to anything of any ethnic value. It's not so much what it ends up, but what's the history and the story behind it. So all these patterns have a history and a story behind them. They have a meaning behind them. It's about empowering, telling a story, but also empowering the, the least of our society. Because typically the farm peasant rice workers were the ones that would do this type of work to embellish their clothing because they didn't have money to go out and buy new clothing. So that's what I'm drawn to. And what keeps me there is I want to take a tradition that's from a different culture and make it my own. So how do I blend American culture with Japanese culture, keep it true to the culture, but also bring in a new light? And that's what I think I bring to the Sashiko. Do you have any uh, favorite tools that you use with that? Maybe like a special kind of thimble or thread? So I do have favorite tools and it, my tools, well, I have a thimble that is my favorite, favorite, favorite thimble of all times. It's um, from a company called Constantine. You can purchase them on my website um, and it's sheepskin. And what, and I have gone through every thimble in this world. Believe me, I have tried it. Um, what I like about it is it's skin to skin. So you take a sheepskin and it's, and you put it on your fingers. So skin to skin, it's going to really um, adhere, but your, your finger isn't going to sweat. You don't have to worry about where the needle hits it because it wrap, it's all the way around your finger. There's no bad points in it. And I have yet to this day, and I've been using them for about 10 years now, ever put a hole in them. So I've never gone through the needle and worn out a hole. And with all the denim work that I do, I've worn holes into a many of, of thimbles. So that's one of my go-to. As far as threads, it depends on the fabric that I'm working with, um, which thread and which company and which size I would use. Um, I tend to tell my students, you want your thread work to... to be able to see your thread work. So you make sure your thread count is larger than the weave count of your fiber or else it's going to go, it's going to end up falling into the weave and you're not going to see your stitches. Another kind of handwork or intentional mending is called boro. And I know that you do that too. How did you get started uh, doing boro? Again, that has to do with like culture so when I was growing up, poor was not in. Like you know, there's certain now poor is kind of in. It's like oh, let me put holes in my jeans and you know that whole um, uh, look. And so what I love about it is mending is taking what you have around you. Again, it's taking my resources, and I'm always reaching out to my students, and they'll say, "Well, Sandra, what do I need to buy?" And I'm go, "What do you have in your house?" And boy, that's again, it's taking the resources. So I'm not a big person or fan of keeping scraps because I've always had uh, a challenge with space. When you have four children, my children are not tiny little kids and they're all into sports. Uh, uh, three of them were college athletes. So we always had a whole bunch of stuff. So I never had a lot of room to keep a lot of scraps. But what I do like about mending is there's particular fabrics that I will keep and I can mend with those. When I buy my Liberties, when I buy my uh, Alexander Henry fabrics, you know, when these fabrics that are amazingly rich in color, the Kate facets, those type of fabrics, I do keep those little scraps because for mending, you don't need a whole bunch of it. Um, I love the mending process because it will add new life to 
a garment. I've had garments where I was like, I don't even want these jeans anymore. You put some, you mend them, and all of a sudden, they're your favorite jeans. Now, if you don't already, you need to follow Sandra on social media. One of my favorite garments um, on your Instagram feed is a pair of overalls that you mended, and you added fabrics and stitching. Um, maybe you can tell people what your Instagram and social media sites are so they can follow you and see more of what I'm talking about. Okay, so all of my handles are the same. Sandra Johnson Designs. So everywhere, anywhere you go, if you want to go to my website, it's SandraJohnsonDesigns.com. Facebook is Sandra Johnson Designs. Instagram is Sandra Johnson Designs. Um, I'm not a big Twitter. I do have a Twitter account. Same thing, Sandra Johnson Designs. And you speak of those overalls, and it's so funny because when I made those overalls, I made them about five years ago. And I was like, I don't know. You're well, I'm going to put you know these patches on them. And I just really just... Went, went out on a limb. I was like, well, I'm going to do this. And if it works, whatever there, you know, I'm going to wear them. Well, what's interesting is all this, all this time I have little old ladies. So I have people from little old ladies literally stopped me. I was at the, um, the, um, ortho, uh, what is it? Orthopedic surgeon. So, you know, most people that go to orthopedic surgeons are kind of a little older. So I had these little old ladies and these, and their husbands and they'd be like, we like your overalls. And then I go somewhere like to the beach or some, some really young, you know, place. And I have this young person I'm ordering fast food and they're like, Hey, I love your overalls. And I'm like, dang, these overalls stretch a big age group. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you work on one project at a time or multiple projects? So I don't work on one project at a time because I feel for me that it's almost like being an athlete. You don't work out the same muscles day after day after day. You have to rotate it so you can become balanced. And so there's times in my life or times in the day or in a week where I'm like, okay, I can sit down and work on computer and I am going to work on writing up proposals. And then there's other times where I'm like, okay, I've already done that for two hours. Now let me jump over here. I want to do some handwork. Generally, I, I, I tend to do my handwork at night. I found out it's kind of my wind down, um, my sewing. There's days where I'll just cut out I'll say, you know what, today's my cut day. And my mind is just geared to cutting. I've got my tools out, my blades are sharpened, my rulers are all out, my tables are the right height, I'm ready. And I just cut. And then there's days that I'll take and I piece sew. So I'll put the thread in, I'll have gray thread or whatever that thread is, and I'll have all these projects and I'll just sew, 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 um, press, press, press. So I don't work on one project at a time, but what I do do is I'll only have so many projects open and until I finish a project, my reward, I don't even get to touch, look, feel a new project until I finish a project. If you weren't working on a sewing or a quilting project, what would you be doing? Oh, traveling. Um, traveling, even in local travel. Um, I live here in Southern California, and it's really sad um, because so many things we have at our finger trip that we just don't do. I mean, I just don't do it. Um, so what I'll generally say is like, hey, tell a friend, hey, let's jump on the train, go down to San Diego and walk around. Um, let's jump on, you know, let's drive up to LA and go to the garment district. Um, just being out and about. I love just seeing the different cultures. I'm really into like people, like how we all exist in this world and how we can make this world a better world, a, a we world instead of a me world. Now, once things kind of open up again, 
Uh, would you be interested in traveling and teaching at either guilds or shops? Yes, and um, I am. Um, I actually do enjoy the Zoom classes, though, too. I feel like I'm able to reach more people. There's students out there that were like, oh, my gosh, like, for instance, Maine or, you know, South Florida. And they're like, oh, this has been an, a great experience. Um, but I am interested in traveling. I would love to go to Australia. I would love to go to South Africa and West Africa. Love to go to um, back to the Festival of Quilts. I actually taught six classes there two years ago. So, yes, I do enjoy that. Um, it is. It's a lot of giving. It's a lot of preparation. It, I think students don't realize how much downtime to teach a one-hour class or a three-hour class, how much you a teacher um, and we're all talking about this in the industry. We're like, oh my gosh, we didn't realize how much downtime we were using to teach those the classes live. So I think that live classes will always be there, but I do see that I will have a portion of Zoom classes that I will always maintain. Um, fortunately, I've been able to do really good um, content and keep my students engaged. Um, I've been told that I'm really good with keeping it feeling like it's almost a one-on-one, -on -one, very intimate, even though I have five or 50 students to 100. Is there anything else that you want people to know about you or maybe your goals for the future or any advice that you might give to others who are creating with fabric and thread? So again, I think my what I want to breathe into the industry is that it's the goal in the old, the goal in the past was all about how close you could get to the pattern. You know, you get a pattern and you're, you buy the fabric just like the pattern or really similar to the pattern and how close the target was, how close could you get to that, that creator, that designer's pattern? And what I want to tell people in the industry and where we're moving to with this whole modern and everything is the pattern is your guideline. It's how close you can get to your interpretation of what you feel that pattern is inspiring you. So if you don't have the exact fabrics, if you decide to leave off a block of that pattern, if you decide to turn some of the blocks of that pattern, it is your right as a creator and it's your duty as a creator to create uh, the amazing piece that you're going to create. And that's what the empowerment and that's what I think that's we, we've got a lot going on in our world right now. We're talking about Black Lives Matter and all that. And I think that's, again, the empowerment of everybody's lives. Every life matters as a creator. It used to be in home economics. I tell I have a joke that I got kicked out of the Home Economic Association because I never wanted to go through the, you know, the, the whole rules thing. You got to do this. You can't do this. You have to do this. And I tell everybody, nobody's ever come to my door, knocked on my door, arrested me because I didn't do a pattern the way it was supposed to be done. Things that are coming up for me, I'm teaching um, for uh, uh, Craft Napa. I think it's called uh, Corked Uncorked. Um, in January, I'll be teaching uh, three classes for a quilt con, which is called ooh, together, something together. Uh, anyway, it's that's in February. Um, and off the bat, I'm still doing Hello Stitch. We've kind of got a little group of people um, that we are going to continue doing every month. It's kind of like a sew-in, but it's across, you know, we're, we're, we're expanding. We make it where new people can jump in and not feel lost. Um, but we, we're, you know, going ahead. We've got a bag coming up and we have a stencil class again coming up and I'm just really open to new environments um, and seeing what I can do with this. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. These are great tips, and I love how you encourage people to think outside the box. Thank you. Hey, it's Lindsay. I just loved Jody's chat with Sandra. Sandra is actually a part of our Meet the Makers issue of American Patchwork and Quilting. We did a fun feature on her as well as seven other designers. So pick up the October 2020 issue of American Patchwork and Quilting to read more. And as always, visit our show notes for the links to the resources mentioned in the interview. Like Sandra said, she has a lot of exciting things coming up. So we'll link to our website and social media so that you can connect with her more. Before we leave today, I wanted to share a fun opportunity for all of our podcast listeners. In the middle of October, we're doing a podcast show about which quilting rules you're allowed to break. So we'd love to hear what quilting rules you never follow, whether it's serious or a little tongue-in-cheek, so that we can share it on the podcast. If you'd like to share, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 515 257 6870. You can also email us your story or a voice memo at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Have a great week!